So it's Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, akia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, it's great to be getting into the word with you this morning. Uh, Now, we are going to head through... Uh, five chapters of what you just read up there. So if that doesn't set your heart on fire, I don't know what does. But, um, but I would put to you that um, well, one that I'm excited to preach through this section of Scripture. And even though a lot of the, the trappings around it might make it seem a little bit inaccessible to us in a modern day context, if you understand just a little bit about the Israelite people and what God is saying to them, the implications for it are massive. Because the question that we're looking at today is, how is it that God will come to dwell with His people again? Years ago, so I used to teach, uh, so I am a teacher by trade, and if you're new here, not everyone is t- teachers here. We do have other you know, professions here, as well as you know, legal assistants and the like. Uh, but um, the, years ago, I used to teach, but I, when I was working at a church, um, I did a, a job that was, uh, you know, if, there was, if, if teaching is hard and then casual teaching is even harder... I taught scripture, which was basically just being thrown to the dogs every week. And I remember going into one particular school that shall remain nameless. And it was a school that had, uh, it was particularly troubled because it almost shut down. And I don't know if you know what happens when when there's rumors about a school shutting down. But basically, all the kind of, uh, like the good kids basically pull out of the school. And it's left with just the kids who, in many ways are not allowed to go to other schools. This is their last stop before juvie, right? And so that was, was one of these schools. And so I remember going to this school, and there was, one, there was one block, and it was even called H Block, which you know, kind of gave reminders of like a prison. There's even an infamous H Block in Geelong Prison, I'm pretty sure, right? And so you'd go into H Block, and you just like, you needed a, a flak jacket and all kinds of stuff. But as you went in there, it had the vibe of like a, a live prison riot. Because you would look up three floors, and it was like it was like you know those scenes like when a when a, a prison's you know going into riot phase, and there were people just throwing like flaming mattresses over the side of the rails. There wasn't quite that, but I just I can still see it now. Looking up, there's just students hanging over the barriers. There's you know poor and harassed nerds just clinging to their backpacks, right, just trying to lay low. And I remember going in there, and the first thing you think as a scripture teacher is you're like, where are the teachers? And they were always coming to class super, super late. So you'd get there, and it was complete chaos. And the first thing you'd think as soon as you walked in there and you just saw just kids doing whatever with durries tucked behind their ears, just swearing, just going off, you just think, where are the teachers? Where is the authority in this place? And every single Monday morning was like that. But I'd say let's expand that out to kind of a a metaphor for our world. I'd say it would be fair that probably most 
thinking people have at some point looked at the world and thought, where is the authority here? Who's in charge of this place? Because it looks like there's no one really in charge. In fact, there's a movie, I don't know if you remember it, years ago called Blood Diamond, where Leonardo DiCaprio uh, did his best at a South African accent. I know we've got a bunch of South African members, so you might not think the same. But he, he gave it a crack, bless his heart, and, uh, he, and was paid millions for it. But in this movie, Blood Diamond, he plays a pretty, a pretty awful character who's, ma- who's plied his trade in Blood Diamonds. So these are, these are diamonds that are basically you know, um, extracted by warfare and all kinds of other means. And, uh, and at one point in the movie, reflecting on all the horrific things he'd done or seen, he said to the person he's kind of reflecting with, he said, I used to wonder, would God ever forgive us for everything we've done to each other? And then he said, but then I realized... God left this place a long time ago. And that was his reflection. And I wonder if that reflects yours or at least somebody you know. There's you look out over the world and everything that happens, you can't help but think, like, is anyone in charge here? If God exists, he must have kept himself a long way from this place. Either that or really there is no God at all. Because when you look around, it's easy to think that. And I'll put to you that the story, the part of the story that we're getting to today is a crucial moment in God coming back to dwell with his people. The whole Bible story starts with God creating humankind and him being present with his people so that where God lives and where people live is one and the same place. But we sinned and rejected God and he had to withdraw his presence so that he wouldn't have to judge sinners And this story, the step that we're seeing in this story of Exodus is the first step since Genesis, since the fall of humankind, the first step that God makes back towards humankind in a significant, permanent way. And so as we look through all this stuff about building a tabernacle, when we get to what that means, what I want you to understand is that this is a massive step in the salvation story of God dwelling with his people again. I'm going to pray that God would open our eyes to see what he would have us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans in this world. You have not removed your presence entirely, but that you have a plan to restore all things back to yourself one day through Jesus. And that we are privileged to be able to see your story unfolding, even before our very eyes. And Father, as we reflect on this part of your story and your word, we pray that the significance of it would not be lost on us. That you are a God who wants to dwell with his people and who is going to dwell with his people and at tremendous cost. And so, Father, we pray that we'd be blown away by what you have to say to us today in your word. Amen. Well, the story so far, as I mentioned, is that God created humankind and he started with two people in a garden made in his image, equal in dignity and worth. This was the, that was set apart from the rest of creation to rule over creation on his behalf. And God says to the man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth. And so the plan was that this, this too would be the beginning of a humanity that would eventually cover the entire world with people who follow God and worship him and love him and love one another. But immediately it breaks down. We decide we know better than God. We know better than his, than his way of living. And so we say, we're going to do it ourselves. Thank you very much. And the result is that God separates himself from his people. Look what it says in Genesis 3, 23 and 24. 
It says, The Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground to which they, from which they had been taken. And he drove the man out, and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God casts humankind out of his presence. He separates himself from his presence because he is so holy that he cannot be around sin. And so as an act of mercy, God withdraws his presence so that he will not have to judge humankind. And he withdraws his presence, but immediately he initiates a salvation plan. He starts with one man, Abraham, and says to him, out of you I'm going to make a great nation, I'm going to start everything with you. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac then has uh, Jacob, and then he has Joseph, and so on. And over the story of, of Genesis, we follow this one family as they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we get to the book of Exodus, and we find out that this people group has turned into a massive people group. But they're all living in Egypt, and Pharaoh decides that they're a threat as a nation and decides to suppress them under cruel slavery for 400 years. And they cry out to God, and God remembers his promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to save my people. And so the two halves of the book of Exodus break in this way. It'll come up on the slide for you. Uh, There's two sort of distinct sections in the book of Exodus. One to 18 that we looked at just before the mid-year break. And really that whole section is defined by this one verse. When God says to his people, the Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent. And so the whole first section, it was just God doing the work, saving his people. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't earn it. He didn't say, hey, if you obey me enough, I will save you from Pharaoh. He just says, I'm going to save you. And he saves them completely. They don't do anything. He completely redeems them. Then the whole second half of the book is now having been set free, he's going to show them how to live. He's going to say to his people, look, this is how you're now going to live as my people. And so the second half would be summed up in this. We saw in the, in the first week of this section, Gav spoke to us on Exodus 19, where he says to him, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So it was all God. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he says, I have saved you out. But not for no reason. I've saved you for a purpose. It says you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be different to the nations around you. You're going to be a, a, a kingdom of priests. Now, what does a priest do? A priest is a go-between between God and humankind. They represent the interests of humankind to God and vice versa. So how is it that an entire people group, we're talking at this point at over a million people, how is it that they are going to be a kingdom of priests? Well, they're going to represent to the nations around them, like one people group. They're going to act like almost a single unit, like a priest to the nations around them. And they're going to show those nations what it's like to live under the good rule of God, the way that it was meant to be in Eden. And so the Ten Commandments that we looked at last week and all the laws that kind of spin out of that, 613 of them, all of those are meant to show Israel, this is how you live differently. And if you go back and have a look at some of the ancient law codes of the nations around Israel, you'll see that if you were living in ancient you know, Mesopotamia, that you would have looked in at Israel and thought, man, I want to go there. That when the people lived as they were supposed to under God, that it was a sign of God's good rule. And he brings flourishing and shows them how to really be human. And so after giving them his law... 
he's now going to make one further promise, and it's massive. And it begins in the passage that Kirillie read out just before from Exodus 25, sentences 8 and 9. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. He's saying here to his people, make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. He says, make a tabernacle. The word tabernacle is not one, I, I don't know if you've used it in conversation this week. The, the easiest kind of modern translation is just a, a tent. But it's not, when we think of a tent, we think of impermanence. We think of camping and whatever that brings up for you. I don't know whether that's positive or negative. But when we think of a tent, we think of an impermanent dwelling. But this is an ancient Near Eastern culture. And a the, the tent there was a set fixture where you would live. And so what God is saying is not that I'm swinging by, I'm going to camp for the weekend and then duck off. He says, I'm going to, you saw the words, I'm going to dwell among you. This means that God is going to take up permanent residence with this group of people and this group of people only. You can't miss the significance of this. The Israelite people would have been hearing this, hearing Moses say to them, God is going to dwell among you, and it would have blown their minds. I don't know if it's quite a, a, the right illustration, but it's the best that I could think of. It would be like, imagine you had made such a wreck of your life that your kids were removed from you. And you thought you were never going to see them again. And suddenly you hear they're moving into your neighborhood. It would be kind of like that. They're like, we've made such a mess of this world and our relationship with God. He's withdrawn his presence and he's not coming back. And then he comes and says, I'm going to dwell among you permanently. Permanently. He says, I'm going to be with this group of people, and not because they were the best group out there, not because they were the most powerful nation, not because they were the ones who were really seeking God. He says, just because he's going to be gracious to them. He's going to dwell with them. He's moving back. Humankind, up until this point, barely had visitation rights with God, and now he's going to permanently dwell with the people. He's going to permanently communicate with them. He's going to permanently be in their presence. God is declaring, I'm moving in. And so he says, I want you to make a sanctuary for me, and it's a tabernacle, and I want you to make it exactly how I say. And then we read from Exodus 25, 10 to 16, the beginning of these exact measurements and communications. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make it on a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and then put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles out of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. I could go on. I could go on for five chapters of that. And if you're reading it along with our daily readings, you will go through the five chapters of the very exact and precise instructions that God gives his people about how to build his sanctuary. Now, why? Surely you could be like, look, the bit where you said, I'm going to dwell with you, that's the big bit. Make the things exactly how I like it. Good. We've got the vibe. Like, we're done, right? Why go into all this detail, five chapters of detail, about gold and onyx and rings and settings and the weaving of cherubim into the fabric of the tent. Why go into all this detail? 
Why go into five riveting chapters? Look, many people stop reading their Bibles at this kind of point and don't pick them up again. But if, we, if, if you look closely, you'll see it's telling us things about God. The reason it goes into detail is because the dwelling place where God is going to be tells us about Him. And this is a simple concept that we all understand. Your house will tell people things about you. Years ago, so when my wife Mel and I started dating, I was living with a mate, and we had just, look, a very classic bachelor pad. I, I called it minimalist. She called it dank and depressing. I don't know, look, it's, you know, whatever. Horses for courses or something. Is that how you apply that phrase? Anyway, but our, our place, I thought it was great. But it was really, I mean, look, I was, I was studying at the time, uh, and my mate was as well. So look, we didn't have a lot of cash to splash around. So yeah, most of our furniture was either like donated, or, and donated by, I mean, like it was out for like council cleanup, and we sort of picked it up. We, you couldn't find two plates that were exactly the same, which is like, you know, I mean, the other side of saying is that's really like unique and, you know, and amazing, right? It's special. You get your own plate when you came to our place. Um, but... It, for, for Mel, you know, she wasn't really vibing with it, but it was, it was reasonably easy, and she would say this even to this day, it was reasonably easy, if you didn't know us at all, if someone just let you into the apartment, you'd probably walk in and you'd be like, this is a bachelor pad, right? Dishes soaking in the sink, just all the kinds of, just typical things, right? You'd be like, yeah, I, there's, two, there's two guys living here, I can tell, just by the, the musky smell. Your place, your house inadvertently, advertently will tell people things about you, will communicate something about you. You can't help it. So what is this dwelling place of God, this tabernacle, telling us about God? What are the details of it that he's going into so expressly that he is making sure they, they do it exactly as they are told? What is it telling us about God? Well, in case you couldn't get a vision of it from what we were saying just before, here's a quick illustration of what it looks like. This would be the, the sort of the organization of the tabernacle. Very minimalist and Scandinavian. He was well ahead of his time. But if you were to enter into the courtyard, the first thing that you would encounter is a bronze altar. And what that would tell you is that before you came before God, there was a sacrifice of blood that needed to be made. That the only way that humankind could enter the presence of God was by the sacrifice of another. Sin and a holy God do not mesh well. God must judge sin. It is dangerous for sinners to come into the presence of God. And yet he, by the blood of another, if the price is paid for the sinner, you may enter into his presence. And so that was the first thing that this was meant to remind them, that the very design of it was reminding them that there was a break between us and God that sin caused, and only blood that atones for our sin would be the way that we would be able to approach God again. But right after that, as you kept going you'd physically come to another bronze ornament, a bronze bowl, in which the high priest was to actually wash himself, a reminder that we need to be cleaned up, that God is holy and pure and righteous, and to come into his presence means cleanliness. But more than that, as you looked around, everything it says in there is made of things like onyx or gold or precious stones. Why is that? Is God just like just flaunting his swagger? Like why, why is there so much expensive stuff in there? Well, all of these uh, stones and precious, uh, precious golden stones are meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 2.12 that the, land of the, gold was, uh, the, land, the gold of the land was good and aromatic resin and onyx were there. 
It's meant to evoke this sense of being back in the Garden of Eden, to be back in God's presence. Not only that, but all of the, all of the, the stitching in, in the tent around were things like cherubim. Cherubim, by the way, were not fat little baby angels. Well, no one knows exactly who first came up with that idea or why it caught on. It's just nowhere in Scripture. The cherubim were usually kind of animal creatures that were a combination of animals, and they were meant to represent all of creation, and they were terrifying. And we're told back at the beginning that they were the, way, they were the things that guarded the way between humans and God. And so all of these cherubim in and around the, the tabernacle were meant to remind us that there is a separation between us and God. And that he is breaking that down. And so they're everywhere. More than that, there are seven golden lampstands. And this became a key symbol for the Jewish people. You may have seen it represented by just a single stick up the middle and then kind of curved ones coming off it. Even if you look at ancient ruins today, wherever the Jewish people were, you will find these symbols. And they're a fairly sure sign that there was a Jewish community abiding there. But the reason there were seven golden lampstands was that it was meant to evoke in the mind the sense of the tree of life. Back in Eden, when God was at peace with his people, we walked in harmony with God. All of this stuff is meant to remind them of Eden. As they keep going, though, they'd find the bread of the presence. This is inside now the holy uh, the, 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 uh, tabernacle. And, uh, and they'd find the bread of the presence, which was meant to symbolize the fact that God was like having a meal with his people, a meal of fellowship. In ancient cultures and even in modern cultures, the idea of sharing a meal with someone is that you were in right fellowship together. And all of this is meant to give the sense that, we were in, that, that God is drawing back in a relationship with his people. The altar of incense was to represent the prayers going up to him by his people. And the curtain dividing the section that is then called the holiest of holies is again meant to give this sense, even as the high priest walks through it, that approaching, the, approaching a holy God is dangerous. And there is a separation. These are almost safety protocols. And when you finally get into the center of the temple, what you'll find there is an ark. And it's designed to look like a throne. And on top of it, there is nothing. Absolutely nothing. In every other ancient Near Eastern temple, when you got to the center of the temple, what would you find? A statue of the God that dwelt there and ruled over that part of the world. But in the Jewish temple, the reason there was no one there is because God said last week, you are not to make an idol of me because there is nothing in humankind that can accurately represent me. I am the great I am and no one shall make an image to me. And it was meant to communicate as well that even though God was dwelling with his people, he wasn't limited to this temple. It wasn't like God had been contained within this tabernacle, but that he was the one who ruled over everything. He wasn't a local deity like other ancient Near Eastern cultures believed. This was the God who ruled the universe and yet was going to deal very specially and specifically with a group of people. And so at the end of this whole section, in Exodus 29, we read this as God sums up all of these things. In Exodus 29, 42 to 46, we see, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, I, and to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And I will dwell with the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. 
I am the Lord their God. God is saying after all of this, I'm doing all of this. You're creating this to some very specific design so that you might know that I dwell with you. His presence is with this group of people. And you might think, well, what does it mean that God would be present with them? Well, he says it there. He says, I will speak with them. God won't leave us guessing, this group of people guessing as to what his will is. He will speak to them directly. And he does. In the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the reminder that God had, had spoken to them about how they were to live. In this section, we see that God is going to dwell with his people. And it's going to start to restore something of Eden, that his transforming presence is start to, going to start to bring flourishing to human life and to transform the way they live as individuals and as a people group. It meant that God was uniquely available to this one group of people to work and to show them how to live as his people, as people who were set free. But the other thing that the tabernacle communicated was that even though this is an incredible step towards God dwelling with his people again, that he was still, in some ways, somewhat set apart. That he was close and nearby, and yet still distant. Do you know only one person in all of Israel could enter the Holy of Holies, and they could only do it once a year. God was nearby to his people, but it wasn't as though he was dwelling right among them. And this, this, the tabernacle is almost this, this thing to keep God safe from his people and the other way around. You can think of it like this. If you're one of those people who gets stuck down a rabbit hole when you're watching YouTube videos, I feel you. I, years ago, uh, and you might have done this too, I don't know what kind of set it off, but I'd read, heard something about Chernobyl and, uh, and got onto YouTube and onto this long, however many part documentary on it. And it, is, it was fascinating. I mean, the, like, the USSR, whenever they did something, they just did the heck out of it. It was like America had a minor you know, nuclear incident at Three Mile Island, and they were like, that's cute, America. Hold my beer or my vodka. I'm going to show you how to really do a nuclear disaster. And, uh, and Chernobyl was, I mean, when you look at what happened there and how much worse it even could have been, it is, it's phenomenal. But probably the thing that's most kind of that's crazy about it is that this incident happened in the 80s, and it was only within the last, I think, five years, so the, the radiation is still an issue, to the point where they spent, I think it was a good almost 15 or 20 years designing and then building what's called a concrete sarcophagus to go over the top of it. And it's an enormous construction, and it's meant to last sort of the next 100, 150 years. And the idea is that it's to contain just any sort of skerrick of radiation that would come out. But the, the amount of work that went into it, like they had to build it and, and custom build all these giant machines to actually move it, because obviously there's not a huge market for concrete sarcophaguses out there. Um, but the effort they had to go to to protect the people from this radiation is, is staggering. And we get something of that in this design of the tabernacle. That God is good and He's dwelling with His people, but He is holy and they cannot just walk up to Him and give Him a high five. He's dwelling amongst this people group and He is good, but He is not safe. And there is still a very clear separation between God and His people. And this continues all the way through the Old Testament. That it's an incredible drawing near of God and yet there is, if you were an Israelite, you were very conscious that God was still uh, near inapproachable. That is until 
we get to the New Testament, the beginning of the testimony of Jesus, and we read this in John 1, 1 and 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You catch that? John is talking about Jesus as the Word, the one who will communicate God to us. You talk about God speaking to us, it's God in flesh. And it says the very same world, and he dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. I don't know why they didn't go for that word, but, uh, but here John writes that he dwelt among us. God came and tabernacled with people. He spoke face to face with humankind. I mean, this is, I mean, you think that the, the tabernacle is an incredible step forward. This is God walking among his very people, our creator among us. Walking among us, using almost a similar language to in the garden when God walked with his people in the cool of the day. It's an incredible step back toward God's space and our space being the same place. God dwelling with his people. And not only that, but you see the very marks of his presence. When Jesus walked among people, he communicated exactly who God was and showed them in the flesh what God was like. He brought his healing and restoring presence to people. When Jesus walked around, when unclean people touched him, they became clean rather than the other way around. He healed the sick and the lame and the blind. He drew the outcasts in. His, 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 this walking tabernacle was going around, spreading the presence of God and the restoration and renewal that comes with that. And we can't miss this, right? N.T. Wright, a one New Testament scholar, says this to try, and just, to try and give us a sense of what's going on here. He says, how can you put an earthquake in a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those two things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Do you hear what he said? God has become human. And most of us just struggle to get our heads around that, and rightly so. He's saying, how can you put an earthquake in a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can God be in a single human? But as you look at the gospel, and as you look at how Jesus interacted with people, it explains a lot about how people responded to him. That the power of the universe was coursing through his veins, and, and people knew it as they walked around him. You can think of it like this, if, if you've seen any of the, like the Marvel Infinity War flicks, without spoiling the plot for you, they did a great job of that themselves, but without spoiling anything else for you, uh, the, the way it works is there is one, there is one guy who is um, basically uh, super conservative when it comes to resources and population control, and uh, he decides that the way to solve the overpopulation issues in the universe is just to halve it. And many people have pointed out, if he had that much power, couldn't he just double the resources and not get rid of half of human life? But anyway, it's just a movie. Just chill, everyone. But uh, the idea is that he has this, uh, this gauntlet that once he gets these, uh, is it five or six stones? Oh, my gosh. Six, okay, stones that created the universe somehow. Again, don't press too hard on the details. 
But basically, once he has the power that created the entire universe coursing through him, he'll be able to do whatever he wants. And so once he has those, there's no point even fighting him. You don't have to fight him. He'll just unmake you. And once he, once he has them, there's this sense of, of just terror and fear around him. Like, what is he going to do with this power? And that, I think, is the closest sense that you can get to the kind of sense that people got when they were around Jesus. I don't know if you remember the story where they're in a boat and a storm comes up and they're fearing for their life and Jesus gets up from his nap and says, Storm, calm down. And the sea goes quiet and all of the disciples are terrified because they're looking at him thinking, what else can he do? I mean, it seems like the power that created the universe is at work in him and we don't know what he's going to do next. There was this sense of trepidation around him. But what's amazing is what he actually does do next. In John 2.19, he is arguing with some religious authorities about the nature of the temple. And the tabernacle was was the tent version of what later became the temple, which was a fixed uh, temple in Jerusalem. But here, he's arguing about it, and Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was saying, I am the temple. I am the presence of God with his people. And with this incredible power, what does he do? He lays down his life for his enemies. Remember that the temple was meant to be a reminder that we could not come into the presence of God without the sacrifice of blood of another. Who would have ever guessed that it would be God himself who would shed his blood so that he might draw near to us and we to him? And if it wasn't enough that actually Jesus was coming near enough that we might be like, wow, what is this God like? He goes a step further. Jesus says to his disciples, look, I'm going to go away and it's better that I do because if I don't, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. And once the Holy Spirit is, is dwelling within you, it will be God within you. And look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 6.16. In talking of temple language, it says, For we, you and I, a follower of Jesus, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus had to lay down his life. He had to shed his blood on our behalf so that God might take residence up in our hearts. That God cannot come into contact with unclean, sinful humans. And yet His blood has washed us clean, so that He might now take up residence in our hearts. That God wouldn't dwell in a temple or in a single person, but in you. You are a temple. That means God has taken up His residence in you. He has made permanent home in you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God dwells in you. I'm not exaggerating. This is all over the New Testament. People who can speak with God directly. You don't have to go to a unique place somewhere in the world to hear from God. You can hear from Him directly. As you open His Word, His Spirit will give you understanding. You can pray to Him directly, not through a priest or an intermediary. And not only that, but His restoring presence isn't just in one part of the world or in one human traveling around ancient Jerusalem but at work in your very heart, stitching back together your desires and your, your heart. And not only that, but his plan now is not that there'd be one temple somewhere in the world, but that the world would be covered with billions of temples. 
Even think of it like this kind of image. The idea is that the presence of God, and it will come up on the screen for you in a bit, uh, just a world map there. But now God is spreading His presence all across the world by His people being His temples everywhere. Maybe that slide went missing. It would have been really dramatic and compelling, I promise you that. But God is, is now indwelling His people. There we go. There it is. It's there. It's like a heat map, right? Hotspots of God's presence across the globe. And not only that, when, when His people gather together as His church, God's transforming presence becomes obvious to the people around. You know, in the book of Acts, the gospel came so powerfully to the city of Ephesus that it made certain sinful trades unprofitable. To the point where a guy called Demetrius gets so mad at Paul for bringing the gospel to Ephesus that he starts a riot because he's like, everyone's becoming a Christian and now they don't need our witchcraft books and so we're going to go out of business. And so he tries to start a riot in the town center to get rid of Paul because God is transforming that many people around him that his trade is becoming unpliable. You know, that would be the modern day equivalent of there being so many people transformed by God as they understand the forgiveness of Jesus, as the Spirit indwells them, that Star City has to shut down because there's just not a market for it anymore. It would be like that. That's how radically God has transformed even entire communities. God is dwelling in you. That also means that there are no boring testimonies. There can be a boring retelling of a testimony, but it's only because it misses the detail that the God of the universe, through the sacrifice of His Son, has taken up residence in your heart. You can meet with God personally. God dwells in you. That's how near He has come. But you also might say, look, it is the case that we're not home yet. And even though it's true that God dwells in you, it doesn't always feel true. I don't know how true it feels for you this morning, but we're told that this is the truth regardless of how we feel about it. But oftentimes, if you're like me, we can go through stretches of time, days or weeks or even months, when it feels like God is every bit as distant as back in ancient Israel. And you find it hard to believe that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you. Because you don't see evidence of the genuine power of God in your life. You just feel like life is just going on day by day. And so I'd urge us that that is why God has put these words in Scripture. Because even though it's not immediately obvious to our eyes and to what we see, that it is true and profoundly true. And I would say as well that we're called not to settle for that. If you're feeling like God is distant and a long way off, I encourage you not to be resigned to that. Because the truth of Scripture is that He is near and He's done everything to draw near. A.W. Tozer says this, I want the presence of God Himself or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has or I don't want any. That that would be our heart as well. That we wouldn't be resigned to it. We continue to draw near to God, knowing that He's faithful to His promise. He says in His word, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I pray that it would encourage you not to settle. Not to settle for finding satisfaction in other things, in career or entertainment or money or whatever it is that we're doing to make up for what we feel is like the lack of God's presence in our lives. But to know that this word is true and that God is faithful to His word, that if we draw near, He will draw near to us. And the second reality is this, that if you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the living God, which sounds crazy to think about as you say it, it also means 
that people can meet God through you. That you don't need to take them to some high spiritual intermediary, but you can introduce them to God yourself. You are a walking, talking person who has experienced the transforming presence of God in your own life. And your story, as uninteresting or unengaging as you think it is, actually bears the marks of the holy living God. In just two months, we're running something called Introducing Jesus. You've got a chance to do, funnily enough, introduce someone to Jesus. And we're encouraging everyone at church here over these next couple of months to think deliberately about how you, how you use food and to just spend time connecting with people and, and having significant conversations with them. You might have an opportunity to speak of Jesus and even to invite them to come along and to hear that God isn't far off, that He's not left us alone in this universe, that He is the God who loves us and has drawn near and that they can know Him too. And so I'd encourage you to be praying. Pray that you'd see prayers answered, that people would come to know God and have Him dwelling in them through you. Because the reality is that God is going to come nearer still. Look what it says in Revelation 21, 1-5. This is the end of the Bible and the end of the Bible story. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John speaking. The first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. God is going to come nearer still. He will finish the project that he started back at Eden and he will cover the earth with people who know him. Our prayer is that there will be people there on that day who have come to know Jesus through you. We are heading home. We're reminded every day that we are not home. Right now, we are literally moving house again. It's something we do every year. It's like a birthday, except it's crap. Um, (laughs) Not quite as fun as a birthday. But every time you do, it is a reminder that our earthly home is temporary. And even if you have a fixed address, everybody knows that we are not fully home yet. Because we are not yet back with our Creator, the one whose restoring, transforming presence will make all things new. That's what it says at the end of Scripture. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. And may we ache for that day and to know His presence deeply until that day. And may we see many souls go home to glory, knowing Jesus through the testimony of our lives as well. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a loving and good God. That you have not left us in our sin, but have drawn near and continue to draw near. That you by your Spirit indwell your people and transform us inwardly and outwardly. And Father, we pray until that day that you would hold us that you would work through us and that you'd bring about a hope in us, even as it says in your word that Christ in you is the hope of glory. We pray that until that day we would trust in your good promises and all this for the glory of your holy name. Amen.